microphones make a podcast. Two microphones and you make a podcast. Hi, this is Joyce, and you are about to listen to podcast number 14. However, the intro to this podcast will sound like it's podcast 11, and that is not the case. We went a little out of order, but we know what we're doing over here, and we just don't want to confuse you. Thanks so much, and enjoy. Hi, this is Joyce. And this is Mary Beth. Welcome to the Modern Yoga Podcast. This is episode 11. 11. Skinny legs, as they say in bingo. I don't know anything about that. And I also didn't know that's what they said in bingo. So thanks for thanks for that senior citizen talk. I haven't played bingo in a long time. It is fun, though. Have you ever been? I haven't like gone to bingo at like at a church or something or when the ladies do it. But there was this sound. This is going to sound absolutely ridiculous. But there was a bingo uh, event at a country club I was invited to once, and uh, we enjoyed it, but Jeff and I found that we actually hung out with the staff more than with the people playing bingo, so um, it was a good time. Because when you're really into bingo, they go, you know, you've got more than one card, and you're, I know. they take no shit. You no. got to write. That's serious stuff. Aggressive stuff. That's, and there was a woman that I worked with, and we were around the same age. And, fr- I mean, in her mid to late 20s, she was really into bingo. Mm-hmm. And so one time my cousin, Laura and Holly, and I met her at bingo. And we were like, how hard can bingo be, right? We have our stampers. <laughs> and she was like, here, get get a couple of cards. And we did. And we were like, oh, my God. She literally had, I'm guessing she had at least six cards. Mm-hmm. And she would do all her cards and be like, you missed one. Right. And sometimes she would hit for like lots of money. Yeah, they're all over it. I can't, I can't focus my attention on all of that at once. I love the good luck charms. You've like, there were... People that had bingo markers with like fuzzy things on them, and they bedazzled everything, and they had to get in their per- their certain seat, and yeah, there's a lot going on there. Anyhow, we we digress right from the beginning, right at this. <laughs> let's just go left before we even are out of the garage. So, on a more serious note, this is a follow up podcast, or maybe a part two to our introduction um, to yoga and grief. Because as we mentioned um, in the first episode about grief, when Mary Beth and I were both talking about the loss of our dads, we are going to have some guests on in the near future with their stories about their losses. So we are going to just continue going down that that path. That path. Yeah, I felt like we had the time to talk about our dads and our loss and our grief and explain a little bit, but we ran out of time before we really got to the parts for ourselves about where yoga had been helpful or continued to be, you know, connected with grieving or helping ourselves with grief. So I think that it's fair to say that 
although our losses and our experiences were different, um, our dads both were hospitalized or like being treated. My dad was, it was about the last three months that he was in and out of the hospital. And I think about the last six or seven weeks, um, he, he passed on October 2nd and the last time he was home was August 17th. I think it was a little longer for you. Yeah, dad. I had two full years of our, our dad being gone from home and in the nursing homes. And I say homes because he was thrown out of several. <laughs> um, so we had, yeah, the, you're, you bring up a good point because there's time, you know where this is heading. You may not know when, but there's right. time to start processing that stuff versus a sudden death that you maybe weren't ready for and left a little more unsaid or unknown. Well, you knew. I, we, we thought my dad was coming home. True, yeah, but, right. But he wasn't home. He right. was, he was, you know, and it's always very hard when your loved one is not home and they want to get home, whether or not the end is near or, or not. It was and just really, very even, stressful. Even when your dad was going into surgery, the plan was sight unseen, right? They didn't know what they were going to find, but the, the attempt was going to be made right. to bring they, him back home and yeah, that go was on the end there. game. The, yeah, they thought that. They did say though, so they thought his, part of his intestines had died, and they were going to remove that part. Um, and there was going to be a whole few days of like touch and go. Um, and they said there it, it was very possible that he was going to live with a bag, or you know, it, it there was going to be a very long recovery. Um, and they did say if they found that all of his intestines had died, that he wasn't going to survive the surgery. And we all just were like, well, that's not the case, mm-hmm. you know. But and, they, and it wasn't. It was an artery that was um, closed, that had mm-hmm. shut down, that, that was causing everything um, to have the intestines to die and circulation to not be there mm-hmm. um, and all of that. So, so anyhow, in, in the those in that time where he was in the hospital or in a rehab center, um, I depended on my, well, my yoga practice was part of my life anyhow, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't, I knew, I knew I needed to be on the mat Mm -hmm. at certain times. I'm sure you felt the same way. I did. But at that time, my yoga practice was just my yoga practice. By the time all this went on with your dad, you owned this studio and were teaching more than practicing. So that had to be quite a challenge. I mean, I was able to really go and use that one hour Mm -hmm. as what I needed it to be, which for me, I worked with my parents for many, many years. Now, by the time my dad got sick, I was not working for them anymore. But I also lived next door. So there truly was no escape, no escape. And sometimes you're not even aware of that until that one hour. When I would leave the phone in the car, which I never do anymore, but that was the one place. You did this morning. I did at Heinen's accidentally, yeah. And the only reason I figured it out is because, of course, my grocery list was in that Isn't phone. Isn't it weird, though, when you don't have it? I know. I felt really... And I had the thought walking through, like, it wasn't that long ago that this was a normal thing to walk through the grocery store without your phone, but right. I was really freaked out about it. But I would leave my phone in the car go practice at Jane's and really have that hour when, and I told myself, I had to tell myself, even if the house is burning down, 
it's going to burn for one hour before I know about it because I'm not bringing this interruption in. Right. You, on the other hand, still had an awful lot to do and probably not a lot of time to practice. Right. But um, I feel like when I'm teaching, I am sometimes more present Mm. than when I'm practicing. Mm. Because when you're on the mat, your mind can wander. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the practice is to bring it back to the present. But if you're a student and you you fall a step behind or you even miss a whole pose or a whole series, I mean, you're welcome to take child's pose at any time. Yeah, nobody knows, nobody cares. Right. And that's part of the practice, right? But if you let your mind wander as a teacher, you could lose the whole class. Yeah, you do have to be present for others. So I feel like... Um, not and I'm what I'm going to say. I'm not saying this in a bad way. It teaching yoga forces you to be present. For anyway, I, I always tell teacher trainees and teachers like this: these classes are about the students. There, it wasn't about me, mm-hmm. and so, um, yeah. I mean, that's so. I think that my my teaching is also a practice of Mm -hmm. meditation and presence. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was just as valuable as, as my practice. And was, was being present teaching effective as a means of dealing with some of the grief and anxiety because it was a distraction? Yes, I think so. I don't know that it was a distraction. I don't know that I wasn't grieving or not having anxiety about what was going on while I was teaching, I just couldn't give it the energy. It was what I was living at the time, mm-hmm. but I couldn't be teaching and think about, you know, what time is my mom going down to the hospital today or yeah, those you know, details, all of those details. So it was good to give that it was good for me to give it a break for an hour, 75 minutes or whatever it was. Um, you know, and you always feel guilty, or I shouldn't say always, but it's easy to feel guilty when you do that in the time like this, right? Mm-hmm. Because what if my dad was dying during a, a class, mm-hmm. right? And would I always have that regret of like, I should have been there or I should have canceled this class, but Mm -hmm. it was, you know, looking back, he could have, it could have happened. And it always could. And that's why it is a practice to, to be able to say that to yourself. Um, My go-to reaction when there's a crisis is to stop everything. I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm going to stand and stare at this crisis till it's better if somebody's right. sick or some and you can't live your life that way you can't mm-hmm. stare at somebody for 24/7 waiting for them to die or not when right. they might not even be dying and i learned that from um our very i think our very first podcast i brought up those mean girls that i met yeah. the first time i went to yoga and the girl looked so cute in the makeup and the jewelry and the cute yoga clothes and she could do everything. And what I learned about that woman was that she had not one, but two children who were so ill that they had had heart transplants. Okay. I don't know if it gets much sicker than that. 
And it was such a lesson to me about if she can walk away from them for an hour and she can go get her nails done and she can do this, that, and the other. By the way, that was maybe 15 years ago, 12 years ago. And those boys are still alive. Right. And they're adults and they live in their own apartment. And if she had been a person like I could tend to be and sat there and stared at them in their beds saying, don't don't go anywhere. You could get hurt. You could get sick. You could die. Those boys, as well as the rest of the family, herself included, would not have had a life. So right. I learned the biggest lesson about that. Like, you have to live a life and what's going to happen will happen. Not to say you shouldn't be present when you know something's going on for somebody and you can be there, but right. you can't. You, we can't stare at each other waiting for each other to die. And I had a moment, uh, well, a moment is coming up in my memory right now with my dad. So my, my father passed away on a Thursday. Well, actually, technically, it was Friday morning. Um, so the prior Saturday, I was visiting him, and he, um, so the the day before that, which was Friday, they did um, a swallow test and he aspirated mm -hmm. and they were finding that like one side of his esophagus was having trouble pushing things down. But my dad hadn't been eating and hadn't even had an appetite and he was losing a lot of weight. And obviously that that's not <laughs> ideal. And so they were giving him a feeding tube and um, it was they put the tube in and they had to x-ray it to make sure that it's in the right it was in the right place yeah. and this was a saturday so after being at the studio in the morning i went down to spend the, some time with him in the afternoon i actually think i had teacher training too my mom went most of the time he was at university hospitals and what was nice about uh especially during covid which i'm sure they still have covid protocols in place as far as visitors you could only have one visitor a day, but didn't have to be the same visitor. Mm -hmm. uh, he had been at Marymount prior to that, or at you know, initially, and you could only have one visitor period through the whole stay there. So, so anyhow, at UH, my mom visited my dad almost every day, and then every once in a while, um, my one of my brothers or I would go and spend some time with him. So that was my I got to go see him that day because my mom was doing something else, and. There's there's not much to do in the hospital, mm -hmm. right? Like he had watched so much TV. Um, my dad wasn't, you know, comfortable, and he wasn't talkative. Um, n not to say that it, it was uncomfortable, but like there just wasn't much to do but mm -hmm. sit there. And he looked at me and was at some point was like, "You don't have to stay here." You know, and I just wanted them to start this feeding too, but they yeah. were having trouble finding someone to read the x-ray, which is just crazy. They didn't start the feeding tube until the next day, which made oh. me really, really angry. But um, but he was just like, he knew that I was kind of what you're saying, like, you don't have to sit here. Mm -hmm. I'm sure, you, you know, I don't know what he was thinking. Like, right. There's know. nothing productive being done. You're not even probably helping him at that point. I mean, nothing could really comfort him if he was that ill and uncomfortable. Right. Appreciating that you had come and were there, but 
probably even feeling like now there's another person wasting their time instead of just me lingering here. But he did tell me that day because I was like, I think he shut the TV off or something. And I was like, well, what do you do? Because I said, do you want me to bring my iPad or get you an iPad? You could play games or watch Netflix or because the hospital has Mm -hmm. only so much. And he was like, no. And I'm like, well, do you want me to get cross repu like I just kept coming up with ideas. He's like, no. And I'm like, what do you do? You guys watch the clock. And I'm like, that's horrible. And they had, you know, the room is small. He had a single room. And so the bed faced the TV, which was right kind of to the side, but over the bathroom and right over the bathroom door, like this office door was a clock. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't not see the the clock. clock. Then that's what I thought. Is yeah. there anything worse than clock watching? So I was, my internal reaction was like, I'm not going to leave right now. Like I can stay a little bit longer just so that you're not sitting here by yourself watching the clock. Yeah. Helping kill a little time anyway. Yeah. But yeah, so your, your practice through the whole process. Mm-hmm. Um, it was good because it was that time out. And even, you know, though it was... Things were getting really bad before my dad went to the nursing home. He was starting to not be himself mentally, this what would eventually be diagnosed as Lewy body dementia. So when I left yoga and got out to my car, that was a big piece of anxiety because it's like, oh, what am I going to find on the phone as soon as I get in? So it was a lot to carry in and drop there. And then I picked it up again on my way out. Right. But that hour was really good. And the physical rendering, the nice sounds or nice words, maybe music, um, the breathing, just a great practice. And what I've learned starting from back then, then through now is, for me personally, anxiety about the unknown is much more difficult for me than actual grief or loss. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I can do grief and loss all day. I feel like that's a package I can carry or unpack or hold. But that unknown, man, um, when you don't know what's going on and you can't do anything about it and you don't know what your day is going to unfold like, right? Um, that was a lot worse for me then the subsequent, you know, rendering or purging of grief and loss. I don't know. I don't know if that's the same for everybody, but definitely for me. Yeah. I, I think it's different for everyone because of our relationships to the mm-hmm. people going through it. Like I'm thinking right now about how how worried I was and I'm sure my brothers as well, about my mom. Mm-hmm. And my mom was having these severe like ups and downs on what she could have done differently, and I should have had him at this doctor or that doctor. And my mom had taken such good care of him that so the very first day, I think it was August 17th, where he got admitted to UH, um, she went with him to the emergency room because that was the only way he he could get admitted. It wasn't really an emergency, but that's how he needed to be admitted. And they said, 
you can't come back into emergency with us or with him and it's going to be a while. So Mm -hmm. why don't you just go home and we'll call you later. So by the time they called her, they had admitted him to the, the cardiac floor. And, um, I think visiting hours ended at eight and she had called me right maybe quarter to seven and said, you know, that's when he was diagnosed with, um, Oh, what is it when the, everybody, it's a very common, I can't even think of it right now. Like C. diff or something? No, it's when the, um, I'll think of it. It's like a, anyhow, it was something that was manageable, but, um, so she felt relieved and so did I. And she told me that, you know, he can only have one visitor a day, but it doesn't have to be the same person. And I was like, are you going down there? And she's like, oh, God, no, it's too late. Again, this is my mother who's 74 who doesn't know how to get downtown and thinks that everything in downtown is in a really horrible, scary place. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I'll go visit him. So I spent you know, about an hour with my dad, and he was um, seen by a doctor while I was there, and they were asking him about his medications and stuff. He's like, I don't know. So I called my mom and got her on the speaker, and she rattled off everything, how often he's taken him, how long he's been on him, and he had no idea. Mm -hmm. So my mom was taking care of him for so long in a way that he was. she was taking better care of him than he was taking care of himself. So now she was at a point where she she wishes she would she she was taking responsibility for the condition that he was in like she could have done something different and you know my dad just wanted to get home and so that was tearing her apart too because she could have brought him home mm-hmm. we didn't know he was dying had we known he was dying she probably would have brought him home right if we him... had that crystal ball right you wouldn't put yourself through and certain honestly, things i think somebody should have figured that out. I think that there were enough signs that he was dying that that we should have been told. Um, but again, I can't fault anybody in this and that any mm-hmm. of the medical healthcare people that he saw because he had beat so many things so many times. So right. even to them, I remember his when he got a stent in his neck or in his carotid. Uh, they put that there, right? I don't even know. My dad has had so much stuff done, but it was the same cardiologist that did his bypass surgery like almost 20 years prior. And he came out and was telling my mom and I how it went. And, you know, my dad had hardening of the arteries. He had peripheral artery disease. And, and you know, my dad was okay. He made it through the carotid artery surgery. And, and I said, is there anything he should do or not do or eat or not eat? And the doctor just looked at me and said, that ship has sailed. <laughs> 20 years ago. Yeah. And um, and I was like, oh. I mean, I was kind of right pissed, pissed because mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, well then. I... Mm-hmm. But, but so here, that was probably five, six, seven years prior to my dad's death where this doctor who back in 2001 did this bypass surgery, he had a blockage behind his knee and he said he had done a, a ton and said this will last 10 years before it has to be revisited. My dad's bypass never failed. 
Like wow. he never had to. And so here he was years later getting, having, I don't know, what do they clean your carotid artery mm-hmm. out? I don't think they do the stent there. That's for something different. I'm happy to say I don't know don't because know. I don't have any family members that have needed that yet. My dad has had lots of things. So, um, you know, he's basically like being kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not personal, <laughs> impersonal. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but kind of saying, I, I can't, I can't believe he's here. He didn't say that. And I don't know that he even thought that, but like, we are just managing things because, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah, this isn't uh, changing your diet is not going to make your life different now. That's right. too too little too late. Right. Basically. And that was, and my dad still had many years to go. So here he is at, at kind of at the end and he had lived through all this stuff and had seen some of the same doctors, some different, obviously, when you go to different hospitals and you're in an emergency situation mm-hmm. and all that, you don't get your same doctor. But um, actually, after he passed, his primary care physician was nice enough to do a virtual call with my mom twice to talk her through. I remember you talking about that. And and gave I, her a lot of comfort about... Yes, he was wonderful. But I sat in on the second one, and he basically said like my dad wanted he didn't want to hear about anything other than let's patch this up and go on Mm -hmm. like he wanted to get back to his golfing and bowling and going to breakfast and he didn't want to learn about anything going on with him he didn't want to talk about it he just wanted it was like you know it was like you're getting your car fixed (laughs) yeah there's a lot of people that way your dad's not alone in that but I remember that that primary care guy gave your mom some comfort that if not for her care, he already would, wouldn't have been right. around. So Yeah. But watching my mom go through all of this and then in the the few weeks or months after my dad's passing, she kept replaying and replaying and that was that was really hard. Like that whole process and as you know my my dad died, but there's you worry about both of them, mm-hmm. and they're both going through um, something very different. And I don't think my mom realized how much care she was giving. And it was really for the past, or the last 20 years of my dad's life physically. But I think that it had always been that way. It just wasn't physical. I think that right, my other dad's things. needs were. And that makes her loss so much. Um, broader, let's say, because it's not just about the loss of the person, right? It is the loss of the way she has spent her days and her decisions and her thoughts and her meals and everything for all these years. Right. All, most most people who are widowed go through this, but especially when there when there has been stuff to take care of, all yeah. of a sudden, what am I going to do with this twelve hours of wakeful day in front of me? Right? Yeah. And my mom is um, 74 now, and she has never lived on her own before. Like, Mm -hmm. literally never lived on her own. I I can't even imagine that. I I can. um, And it's funny you should mention it because you'll have to tell me after this if your mom is enjoying it. But I lived alone only for a very short time in an apartment when I was divorced. So between my first and second marriage, I didn't go away to college. 
I didn't have an apartment and live with my friends. I got you married. Live on campus when you went to college? No, not in my forties. <laughs> I would have liked to, but they frown upon that sort of thing. So I I got married from living in my parents' house. I was married eight years, and then I lived in an apartment. And I thought it was so cool to pack up my laundry basket and walk to the next building to do my laundry, to make my own peanut butter and jelly sandwich and have that be dinner or something. I just thought that was so cool. So let me think. That would have been about, I got married at 22 and 32. So that would have been about age 30. And how long were you on your own? I lived in that apartment for two years. Um, Jeff came on board at some point during that, but but that first year for sure was, I just thought that was very cool. It was a yeah. whole uh, less than a mile up the road from my parents' house, from my house that I live in. So seriously, yeah. I'm, I just never go far. <laughs> I've lived in the house I grew up in. I lived in Broadview Heights for four years, Hinkley for four years, the Parma Heights apartment, and back where I started, <laughs> and there I stay. Anyway, so I wonder if your mom, and maybe A, it's nobody's business, and B, maybe you haven't even had a conversation with her about it, but if she found any little fun things about living alone, having her own place now, I know she's moved out of the, the family home. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how to answer that. I she so her apartment is beautiful. It's it's brand new. Um, it's just so much better than the house they were living in, and it's on the third floor. Um, she just got a new car. Like she has no worries. You know, if something breaks, which mm-hmm. it doesn't, because she's the first right. one to live in this apartment. Um, that all of that stress and they lived in an old house you know so things are always having to be managed yep all of that stress is gone and then the stress of managing my dad's health care is gone so i think that it's just different for her and she feels and this might be a generational thing that she needs to buy it like you're supposed to buy a house and she and she i understand like she kind of wants a little bit of a yard and she wants a garage mm-hmm. you can you can pay for uh like underground parking at her apartment but um she i i, I was actually thinking about doing this for her but apparently the underground parking is only at the edges of the building and you have to go up an elevator or steps to get to the main floor. And then you have to walk to the other elevator and steps. So it's, it's only the, it's not convenient. It's just a matter of putting your car, like having your car covered, you Mm -hmm. know, it's more convenient for my mom to park as close to the door as she can. And have less far to walk. Sure. Exactly. She doesn't like having to like go up three floors. She has an elevator, but. Right. But I mean, still, if you're carrying groceries or whatever. Right. She doesn't like that. But, um, and there's a so she's in a 55 plus building um but there's a group of people probably like less than 10 people who have physical um disabilities and they sit in the lobby and they kind of all hang out together so my mom which is fine and they all say hi whenever my mom kind of feels like that makes her feel like she's in somewhat of a, of a nursing home or an yeah, assisted living home and i understand why she would want even if it's no bigger than the apartment just your own little piece of Something. Your own little piece of grass, your own little garage, your own little, it's just a privacy thing even. You don't have to see anybody when you get home maybe. But when she wants to do something, she she has 
nothing to stop her yeah. at all. So she she's golfing. She's working part-time at the golf course. She's, you know, going wherever she wants to go. She goes to lunch with my aunts all the time. If she needs to go shopping. She just goes shopping. So she has all that freedom. But on the flip side, when she doesn't have something to do or there's not something planned, I talked to her on the way here to the studio a couple of Wednesdays ago, and it was probably 4.30 in the afternoon, and she was already in her nightgown on the couch. I'm mm-hmm. like, come on, Mom. You know, like, she's like, well, I don't have anything to do, so I'm just going to catch up on all the things I DVR'd, and, mm-hmm. and, and she said sometimes I get, I get depressed. So mm-hmm. um, she's okay, though. I'm not mm-hmm. worried about her like I was when, when my dad was around. I was worried about both of them. Right, right. It's, it, you said it last night at our book club meeting. Um, we had read Water for Elephants, and there's a certain amount of elderly nursing home talk in that book, too. And we said how the you know women are stronger a lot yeah. of times at this sort of thing. They're not. It's not that they're not sad and not grieving, but they've they're already used to managing so much and right. and feelings and the feelings of others, and they're resilient. Yeah. Just ask Loretta. Loretta is resilient, and she is going to be on this podcast. Well, we are getting her podcast. in here one of these days. How about your mom? She's been living on her own, but is it kind of like? Not living on her own because she's right next to you? It's interesting. Um, my sisters each lived only about a mile away, too. My my elder, eldest sister has since moved to Canton to be closer to her daughter and grandbabies. So that's like a whole hour. So Jeff would call it the commune back when we were. So the fact is, it was sort of home base for everybody, which is great. Sure, Always yeah. somebody coming and going. Um, so that did make a difference. Um, people will say to to us, oh, that's so cute. You live next door. That's so nice. And yeah, it can be really nice. It could also be really bad. Luckily, my mother is really very um, considerate. She doesn't just assume. She doesn't show up. You know, we have two separate entrances. It's a side-by-side duplex. We just share the front porch and the back porch. Yeah. And luckily, she's great with technology. She's out there Facebooking and tweeting and texting. So she'll say, you know, like this week, she texted me at some point and she's like, hey, when you get around to it, the only clock I couldn't reach to change is my kitchen clock. Can you, you know, you or Jeff do it when you get a minute. So she would never assume, you know, we don't, we don't do meals together. We, unless we choose to, you know, we don't. um, So it is, it's pretty ideal because that's a lot of stress on children of, of sure. elderly parents. When am I going to get over and cut my mom's grass? When am I, what if she does have a light bulb out in the bedroom? I can't have her in a dark bedroom. I got to go change it. You know, and if you have to if you have to interrupt your days to to travel and do that, so we don't have any of that. So it is um, it's great. And I will say that other widows have been so great at taking care of each other. They, yeah. she's never at a shortage for plans. People have invited her. She was invited to a golf league after my dad died. She hadn't really golfed. She golfed with my dad in Florida, but she hadn't been in a ladies' golf league. But um, our old family friend Nina invited her. Our old family friend Elaine invited her to start going to Florida, oh, which nice. she right away did the next year after my dad, much to our surprise, I think. But just, just that resilience again, that bouncing back. So, I mean, she had her time. It, it was rough. She wanted to be able to bring my dad home and take care of him at home with dementia like so many people do. And so that was us being very strong and pressing 
to her that it was not safe and it was not possible. And so that was a hard time for our family, but um, everybody everybody came through it stronger. And, and that's what I mean when I say that some of those things are much harder, at least for me, they were harder. And they got dealt with a lot on my yoga mat, those kind of you know yeah. fights with my sisters and feeling not heard or not understood or feeling like a bully. There's a wonderful woman that I met at a, it was like somebody's, I don't know if it was a pampered chef party, a jewelry party. Um, I think she's at Thayer's Meats in Parma, and she's a friend of the friend whose house this was at. And I was arrived there crying because it had been a bad day. I was very nervous and upset at whatever was going on at home. And a couple drinks in, these people out on the back porch of this of this home where this party was took me and they're like, listen, here's what being a good daughter means now for you and your sisters. You got to take your feelings out of it. Take your parents' feelings out of it. Doesn't matter if they're mad at you. You have to do what's safe for them. You have to do what's best for them. They, they almost slapped me across the face. They like took me by the shoulders and were like, listen, stop emoting about this. This is not the time. You got to do what's best. Right. That is what is best for your parents, not what makes them feel better. And that really did help me, shook me, you know, shook me into into shape a little bit. Um, there's just a lot to adjust to, you know? Yeah. I, actually, it's funny. I, I think we had a little bit of the opposite of where we, same but different, that we were trying to make the best decisions, like do what's best. And it was safer for my dad to be in rehab or to be in the hospital. It wasn't fair to my mom. Not that she wouldn't have gotten any help, but, but right, he could fall. He could fall. He could hurt her. Um, he needed, you know, he was very, very weak. But again, had we known that he was dying, we would have definitely had him at home. Yeah. And, and just got the where, care, got the help. Yeah. So that, that's tough. But yes, we were absolutely trying to make the right decision because my dad needed care. Like mm-hmm. we we knew that my mom wanted to get him home um because he wanted to be home. So he wanted to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah, nobody's comfortable at the hospital. <laughs> nobody's comfortable at the hospital and it was ripping my mom apart that he was he I get it. He just wanted to be home and we were in a a, a time of covid. So that yeah, all was, bets were off. That was hard especially at the rehab center because he was too weak to go home. And, and granted, he eventually made it back to the hospital. But they put him on the, the ground floor when he was there originally. And um, we could visit him through the window. And it was it was miserable to even look at. I, it, it was It's heartbreaking to even think of. And what you miss when you're not there, when you can't go in, because we all spent lots of time outside the window, is... You don't see what kind of food he's getting and how much of it he's eating and like what's going on inside. And that doesn't sound like such a big deal because my dad was with it sort of mentally. Mm-hmm. And he, and again, we were doing what was best for him. So he was being cared for. So whatever we were hearing or my mom was hearing from the rehab center, we trusted. But when he would, he had to go get a, um, an endoscopy at UH and he was there for like a day and he came back. 
they decided in the day that he was gone that they were taking people who needed to quarantine for two weeks because every time you left, you had to quarantine for two weeks and putting them on the second or third floor. So then we couldn't, couldn't see him outside yeah. the window and they had a um, an iPad or something on the floor that the patients had to ask for or that family members had to call and sort of set up. My dad didn't give no. a shit about the iPad, but we made that work. My mom did like here and there, but they talked quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And then I remember having a conference call with his care team there. And so my dad had stomach ulcers. Um, He had had colitis as well, but when he had the endoscopy, he had stomach ulcers. That's what they found. And he told my mom that they gave him orange juice when he got back. Ouch. It hurts me to even hear that. And so my mom was like, why? My husband said you gave him orange juice. Did you give him orange juice? And it, I don't know if these people were all sitting together or if they were all on like a conference call line in their own office. Nobody knew what each other was doing. And somebody goes, well, he didn't come back with any dietary restrictions. (laughs) And my mom said, if you had an ulcer, would you drink orange juice? And her response was, do you want us to take all acidic food off of his uh, dietary um, menu or whatever? You know, like he, and she's like, yes. But again, my mom would have been there physically. Right, being able to be present and see those little things because shit happens. That's, right. It's no big deal, but you're there to right. to, to stop it. And I my remember, dad's not going to say, oh, I can't have orange juice. I remember once my dad was on oxygen, um, just that little tube through the nose and the cannula, which I happen to know is the name of the tubing, right where it went around his ear, I could see that it was getting a little red and inflamed. And he, by that point, was pretty deep in the dimension and couldn't really say anything about that himself. So I showed a nurse, but you know, um, not everybody's going to see that. Those people are right. busy; they're understaffed. So you—that's why it's so important to advocate. And if you're if you're not allowed to be there, right? It's yeah. And he was telling my mom that he was eating his lunch and his breakfast mm-hmm. and whatever. And then on this call, they said he, when he was on the first floor, he was eating only fifty percent of his meals. And then now, after he came back from the endoscopy, he was lucky to eat twenty five percent of his meals. But my mom would ask him every day, like, oh, what did you have? Not not are you eating or whatever, but what did what did they serve you for lunch today? What did you have? And, and he would how say, was it? but he didn't say, I only ate 13% of it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it was, I COVID, I was thinking a lot about those kind of situations because if that had been going on when my dad was in, I don't know what I would have done. I... I I feel like I might have been arrested because I can't imagine how hard it was for you and everybody else to to stay away when it, your loved one is there and you're not allowed to see them and, and really can't even get in. It sucked. It totally sucked. I mean, talk about your guilt for this and that. <laughs> I mean. But who would have ever have guessed that you would have you, it was a privilege for you to be able to just go see your dad, you know? Right. Because you, we did have to advocate, especially with him having dementia. So we were all over. And I don't mean we were, you know, loud and annoying, but I mean, we were there. They knew we were there. And sorry, but you do get a different level of care. Yeah. Um, I, and also, I, we passed out a lot of uh, incentives. 
to to people who were helpful. We really those people work hard, and uh, if if somebody was gonna not get the absolute best care on any given day, we did not want it to be our dad. So we were there a lot, and we uh, knew what was going on. We knew people's names, and they knew ours. So the fact that everybody had to leave their loved ones during COVID, and just be home wringing their hands, hoping they were getting the best care is heartbreaking. Yeah, it was really. Now, not to change the subject, but since I'm a number of years further in this particular losing our dad's journey than you, what I'm really looking forward to is all the ways that you can, in the future, come to terms with things and have new light bulbs and realizations and deal with the grief moving forward after losing your dad because it's still happening for me but it's been you know i i was able to find out that as i age and as i get more distance from his death that you know my dad did give me more than just bushy eyebrows and a love of snack foods <laughs> <laughs> i was i'm able to see the time of losing him and grieving as a very rich time for the family and for myself. And I'm looking forward to that for you. I know a lot of things are going to get better and feel better and be happier memories. Yeah. I, you know, I think I don't know how that's going to how that's going to sort of iron itself out. I think that um like part of what the pain that I'm feeling is that I realized I have to let him go and I have to let the idea of getting to know him better, even in his death go. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. We want to do things about things. And this is something you can't do anything about there. There is no more conversation to be had. Right. There's, there isn't. And and as I mentioned last time, I feel like I'm learning more about my dad and maybe what Vietnam did to him um, now than I did when he was alive. And I just, it, I can't even come to terms with that we never talked about or he never talked about it. And we were just supposed to, I guess, looking back, act like our dad was just sort of no, nobody's dad's normal, but like that he didn't go to war. He's the mm-hmm. same as the guys that didn't go to war. And, you know, some of the stories that I've learned about my dad are so heroic. Um, for example, there was a man in the area they didn't meet until they served together. Um, and this guy was sort of, his name was always in our lives, but he was somebody that really um, liked my dad. He wanted to sort of like be friends from from the war. At least that's kind of how it was presented in my childhood mind. And my dad didn't dislike him, but wasn't necessarily interested in maintaining a relationship with him. And I thought, you know, at first, maybe not at first, as I got older, that he just didn't want to relive those 
whatever he did with those experiences, the same, the common experiences he had uh, with this guy, he just didn't want that stuff to come up when he saw mm-hmm, him, right? Mm-hmm. But um, he wanted to leave his live his life and leave that behind. It sounds like your yeah, dad. Yeah, and this guy was like very. I was a veteran. I served yeah, in the Marines. Like, yeah, and very proud of it. And I think he actually might have recruited for the Marines. You know, I don't, I don't know. He was just very into it. I know you're about to finish this story, so don't lose your train of thought. But I thought of you yesterday. I was out for a walk because it was still warm. Yeah. And an old guy was out, you know, like blowing his leaves. And he had, like your dad, his hat. hat on, baseball hat. So um, I said, Happy Veterans Day. And he said, Thank you. And yeah, I said, No, thank you. Been- and he was beaming, you know, he was thrilled. Yeah, my dad would have been cleaning up yesterday. We were texting about it. He would get my mom's like, we would have been to Applebee's because they give free meals and mm-hmm. he's gotten free haircuts and free coffee and free donuts. And, mm-hmm. um, but my dad didn't start wearing like his Vietnam stuff until he was maybe in his 50s or at least that I, I remember. But it it attracted other vets. It mm-hmm. did attract a lot of people to say thank you for your service, mm-hmm. and he would he would acknowledge that. But it attracted other vets, and and I think he would talk to other vets, you know, here and there because mm-hmm. obviously you know you're not going to spend an hour with somebody who you meet at Applebee's or whatever. Um, but anyhow, this man. Um, he died a few years ago, and apparently my dad spoke up at his funeral, which my dad never mm. did. Um, and then on the day of my dad's wake, I learned the whole story. And I think my brothers might have known it, but my dad saved this guy's life. Like, mm. he 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 literally saved this guy's life. And um, not in a, you know, he had to do something very difficult to save this man's life. So, of course, he, I understand now why he didn't necessarily want to maintain this friendship or like at that level that this guy did. This, I mean, it's my dad two saved separate his worlds. life. So, yeah. he, of course, he thought the world of my dad where my dad was like, yeah, I don't, I don't really need I don't know what my dad was thinking, mm-hmm, but he right, didn't yeah. want to um, to foster that relationship. Although he didn't have, he didn't hate the guy or anything. He just yeah, it maybe was just an uncomfortable position for him to be in. Well, and I had heard something somewhere, or maybe I read it that um, that in, if if he would have allowed him into his life and our lives his sort of secret would have been exposed. It's mm-hmm. not not a secret, but something that he didn't share with us. Right, right. right. Just two and separate so, words. It's back it's it's almost like being in the closet in that way. That was a yes. that was a different part of life. Shut the door. And one a part of life that he didn't he didn't sign up for. Mm-hmm. He didn't ask to go and have to be put in these situations. And I'm speaking about this in terms that my dad would never have he would never have this conversation. So that's really tough too, because I'm giving my, my father words right now. Right. Based on your interpretation and based on my interpretation. Yeah. And so there's another specific story that, that, um, I think I, I'm more comfortable sharing, but apparently somebody in his, that he was serving with alongside of, you know, was shot and he and another, um, Another Marine ended up carrying 
this this person's body for four miles. And my dad and this other uh, Marine were at some point told, now we're going to switch and two other guys are going to carry the body. And they said no. And my dad would absolutely not put this body down because I don't know if he didn't trust or whatever. He was just finishing his job in his mind probably. And my dad wrote a lot of letters. We have binders full of letters but he well, never good. really talked about like the war. He talked about missing home, and he talked so much about family. I miss my nieces and nephews. I miss everybody being together, and, and maybe I'll, I'll read some of these mm-hmm. and some other podcasts, but he never yeah. actually talked about what he was was doing. But with how much he talked about family, I can, I, I can only imagine that maybe he was thinking, if if this were me, this is what I'd want my family to know, you know, like my body was carried or respected or whatever. Um, And so this was somebody's son and brother and maybe uncle and, you know, so it it just, but these are, these are things I didn't know about my dad when he was alive and he only passed a year ago. And so it's very hard for me to, I think my dad was in a lot of pain and what I felt well, when I was growing up was maybe disappointment or maybe a non-belief in me was really whatever was going on internally. Mm-hmm. And that's why he was so withdrawn and that's why he needed so much care in whatever way that it took. And I do think that you're going to find, I mean, you you can't hurry the harvest here. I right. do think you're going to find more insights because you are going to change right. and you're going to find more in common with your dad and realize what he meant. That really does all happen. Yeah. And I, f- I feel that for sure. Like I see my dad, you know, I know that I act like my dad's, you know, I, well, this is where you learn from your parents, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Do you ever look in the mirror and see your parents? Oh, yes. It's crazy, isn't yes. it? Yes. It's so crazy. But, um, I mean, I, I I know that, and there's like it it hurts. It's bittersweet because mm-hmm. there's there's this like I don't really feel like I knew my dad as well as I needed to know him, mm-hmm. and now it, in his death, I'm feeling like how much I really even know him. Mm-hmm. And then I feel like there's this possibility of what my dad could have been like had he not had this experience, and maybe things I'm enjoying and seeing in life that. That he never allowed himself to or couldn't because mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. whatever he went through, um, and so there's like a it's a loss, but it's a loss in the form of a void. It's not like I mean I lost my dad, but mm-hmm. but these right, things I'm a, learning are things I'm learning and not things that I had that I that I lost. Right, right. It's a place that you can't fill. There's yeah. an old song uh, some people might remember that are country music fans. It was a Reba McIntyre song called The Greatest Man I Never Knew. If you want a cathartic tearjerker, go look that one up. But down. yeah, The Greatest Man I Never Knew. Uh, I, I can't really listen to it without crying. And that brings up a good point. I've said that I had an uncomplicated relationship with my dad, but he's from that same generation. He didn't, we didn't talk about feelings and stuff. Right, you know, right. we didn't, he was a dad 
He was, there was a distance there and a discomfort. He had three daughters only. So there was probably like, uh, what do I do with it? It's a girl kind of thing. Um, and so it's been a pleasure to realize some of these things as time goes on. And for whatever reason, they, they do occur to you on your yoga mat because you're yeah. quieting your mind and your breathing. I've realized in recent years, I don't know why this comes to mind now, but My dad, I, I always thought he was the eternal optimist. And so I thought I was an optimist. And I've come to realize neither of us are optimists <laughs> at all. Yeah. What he was that I now understand that I am too is a realist who makes the best of things and has a positive attitude. I have a hard time with hope. And with optimism, I do. I I go right to what could happen, and then yeah. I say, and this comes straight from my dad. I know it does. That will have to be okay. We'll make that okay. And um, all these memories and things that come up often on the yoga mat, that one was a little light bulb when my mom had breast cancer 15 years ago. Wow. A very uneventful thing, luckily. Oh. She just had a little lumpectomy and some radiation. But at the time, her lump, which was caught on a mammogram, was very small. And I remember the surgeon telling us afterwards that it was a difficult surgery because it was way back against the chest wall. And they really had to dig for this small little tumor. And I remember at the time um, thinking, A, thank God for mammograms, because by the time that would have been felt as a lump, it surely would have been a devastating sure. diagnosis. And B, silently in my mind, I thought, oh my gosh, it's probably on her ribs. It's probably on her lungs. It's probably on something else. Oh, you, yeah. And only in much later conversation, years later, after she was fine, my dad confessed to having the same thought. And so that's one of those things where it's like, yeah, we're not I drove around processing my mom's diagnosis and it wasn't, you know, she's going to be okay or even please God, let her be okay. It was like, this is how this might go. She might die from this. She might have chemo and lose her hair and be throwing up. And this is what we're going to do. This is, we're going to handle it. We're going to make the best of it. We're going to yeah. love her. And and so I realize things about my dad that I didn't realize when he was alive, you know, just, and I think the same is going to happen for you, good and bad, but it's just, um, it's an interesting thing, this life, this generational yeah. stuff. I do think of a moment, um, so James had a, a really bad accident about five years ago. He hurt his shoulder really bad and he was in the hospital for a few days and my parents came to the hospital um, every day he was there and James had said something when they walked in, like, you guys, thank you. Or you didn't have to, you don't have to mm -hmm. come back every day or something. And my dad just looked at him and said, what makes you think that we're here for you? Oh, and I was like, oh, <laughs> and, and that's one of the really rare times that and my dad wasn't like being a jerk to him. No. He was just like. We might not be here for you. We might be here for Joyce. I might. Know? Yeah. 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 Um, and so... I might love you guys, yeah, he was yeah. saying. And so there's just like... I, I, I'll find peace 
someday mm-hmm. and maybe maybe I won't maybe that's mm-hmm. just like my dad I don't think really ever found peace maybe I, I do feel like uh, we were talking about this last time that all the stuff that isn't talked about is passed down I, I am mm-hmm. very I can be very passive aggressive like my dad when and when I get angry or I'm very uncomfortable I can shut down like nobody's business I can get you know super quiet I don't know if these are qualities that are necessarily that I'm proud of taking those from my dad, but they're definitely where I learned them from. Um, And you should be proud of, you know, taking stock of them and considering because of your relationship with your dad, how they might affect the people around you. Yeah. And I do sometimes feel very different and distant. And I I felt this way when he was alive because I have gone through therapy and I have taken a look at things and I have grown and yoga has been, um, so fruitful for me in that way. And it just put dis- more distance because he kind of stayed where he was mm-hmm. and let that sort of fester. And I went forward and tried to move through some of it. Mm-hmm. And not that it was exactly the same thing, but there's a lot of the same stuff in there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, th- that's hard too. But, um, you know, it's weird for uh, about the year first year after he passed, I swear he was talking to me through the those um, spotlights in the studio. For those of you who don't come to the studio, we have four, four lights that we can control with either a remote control or I have an app that has a lot of settings on it for colors and stuff. And I, I am not kidding you, at least two or three times a week while I was teaching one light would go off or the other light would go off and it didn't seem to be happening or at least not happening with the consistency that it happened for me for anybody else. I mean, did it happen for you at all? Cause James didn't, it didn't happen for James at all, but mm, like there's, no. there's a particular song that I found that's, it's very ambient and it actually reminds me so much of, of the very last, the end of his life. And when I'd put that song on, the the lights would start going crazy. I'm like, oh my God, he's talking to me. And I remember saying one day before one of my classes, I think my dad visits me during this class and then a light shut off Mm -hmm. and then another light shut off. Wow. And it, and then when I got to a realization that, um, like I need to let him go, then the light stopped. Do he hasn't Mm. done that in a while. And now I'm like, come on, let me ask you a question that you may choose not to answer without being prepared do you feel like you know where your dad is? Or I don't know what your beliefs are about that. And here's why I'm asking, and this will give you a second to think about it. I I believe I know where my dad is. And I pray sometimes, you know, these qualities that you're talking about, that you're working through and purging, you know, that you could pray if you think that way, that your work is on his behalf as well. Yeah, and for his relief and wherever his soul is, depending on what you believe, um, mm, that helps. Yeah, yeah, that can be that can be gratifying too. I had one dream. I, I've had dreams since my dad died, and he's just in the dream. Yeah. You know how dreams are weird, yeah. like somebody from high school and uh, James's car, and then my dad eating turkey, like right. apropos of nothing. But there was just one dream, and I wrote about it. That, and it only probably took a second. But in most of the dreams that he's in, I know about the dementia 
but he doesn't and other people don't. And I'm afraid of them finding out and I'm afraid of him driving and I'm afraid of all the things I was afraid of. But this one dream, I knew that he was dead and gone and the dimension was over and he knew that I knew and everything was good. And and he hugged me for a moment and he smelled like my dad. And I woke up smelling my dad. And he said, um, typical of our relationship during this hug in the dream, I said, we miss you so much. I said, we don't want to, but we do because we had a very jokey thing. You know, we weren't, we we didn't go around saying I love you. And he smiled and he, he, his usual real laughing smile, he had a wonderful smile. And he said, I know, but I really love it here. So I don't know where my dad is, um, but I know that he's getting closer to peace. I know when he first died, um, I, like my mom was sort of looking for signs of him everywhere, and I was getting the signs and the lights, or at least I thought mm-hmm. I was. Um, I just felt like he was trying to figure things out. Mm-hmm. It did feel like I felt a lot of relief for him that before my dad passed, um, when he couldn't respond back, I said, Dad, I'm, I'm really sorry that your life was so hard. I don't know that anybody ever had acknowledged that and he couldn't talk mm-hmm. he couldn't mm-hmm. and and so I feel like he could I feel like in his death he had like he has to your soul has to let that go mm-hmm. right like mm-hmm. it wasn't his fault that he was drafted or he was put into those situations or that he carried that all with him mm-hmm. but now he could let it go mm-hmm. and so I feel like you can't just like so you just let your whole life, you know, like, who am I? Who is he now? You know, Right. Like, what did it matter? What was it for? All of those. What's the purpose? And That's... so I felt like it, it. he wasn't, I felt like my dad was figuring things out for a long time and that we weren't going to sort of like see signs from him. My mom doesn't really think he, she, she's seen him or felt him. She looks for him all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not just here, but in the, in the studio, but in, in dreams and stuff. Um, I, st- I, and I don't know why this is just my gut, but I just think that's a whole process. And I feel like he's moving towards peace and he's way closer to being at peace than he was a year ago. Um, and I don't know how, how time works. <laughs> right. Um, but I, I feel like he will find peace he'll find peace and we'll know that. And somehow his birthday is January 1st. And my Mm. mom and one of my brothers and I went to um, the cemetery and I'm like, he's not here. Mm -hmm. Like I've always, yeah, there's a lot of people that do love a cemetery visit. I I never have because I feel like they're not there, but I know it does bring comfort to a lot of people. So yeah, no judgment as James would say. Right. No. And maybe that is, but I just, that's not where my dad is. Right. You know, it's it's a it's a memorial to him. His body may be there, but he he's not there. Um, but now we talked a lot about our dads and and about processing our grief. Did you did you want to do this uh, thing we talked about doing? I do, and I wanted to say one more thing. I, like because this is about yoga, but I I you know we talked about me teaching. I knew that the time on my mat so. Because my yoga practice was so um, 
it wasn't new, right? Like you're talking mm-hmm. about, I, I own a studio. Right. right. Um, I think back when yoga kind of found me and I was going through stuff, I didn't necessarily understand what was the healing that was going on where mm-hmm. I completely trusted that during mm-hmm. this time. And that even if I didn't feel like practicing or even if I knew that it was going to be painful mentally and, you know, and even physically, cause mm-hmm. you carry all that oh stuff my gosh, with yes. you. I knew I, tr- I had so much, I still do have so much trust in the practice that I knew it was good for me. And I, I, and so I got back to my mat. It's, it was very grounding for me. Um, because I didn't know what was going to happen, but mm-hmm. I knew that I knew how my mat felt underneath my body, and I knew that I could breathe, right? right? And like it's just all those things that you check in with, like my feet are on the ground right now, and and I know that I'm sure of that. And that's the thing; it can be really complex or really right. simple. It doesn't have to be this giant meditation practice. It doesn't have to be crying and purging and figuring out your grief. It but can it be could. just as, it, but yeah. it could be yeah. for a lot of us. It is for a lot of us. It changes o- over time, and it's an arc up and it's an arc down. But it could be nothing else than I I'm just on, here on this mat. I, I don't need to think about anything. I don't need to process anything. Right. So that's the magic of it. Is but then when those tears do come, they're so oh, relieving. So cathartic. Yeah, it's crazy. It's it it's yeah, we're we're lucky. So yes, I would like to um I still would like to We had we had thought we had talked before our, our last um portion of this episode about maybe reading our dad's eulogies because uh that might be the sort of encapsulated version of meeting both of our dads. So you're ready to do that? I am. I will say before I do this, though, that yoga helps me with this, too, because I have no problem speaking in front of people. But for whatever reason, at my dad's funeral mass, when I was supposed to, about to go give his eulogy, my physical body started shaking and trembling like a leaf. Like Jeff was like, are you, are, are you okay? Are you going to fall down? I felt fine inside, but yeah. my physical body was shaking around me like a bag wow. of bones. And so I just, of course, what did I do? I softened my knees, I tightened my core, and I breathed, and I went up there and delivered this beauty. (laughs) Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Our dad's name is Hap, and what a wonderful place that is to start. He was nicknamed as a child for being happy. What better one-word description could there be for a person or his life? It makes you consider what you would be called if you were restricted to only one word. I think I gave an eye roll there because, you know, dirty twerty. Even as an adult, Hap refused to be anything but happy. He was happy with what God gave him. He was happy to share what God gave him. He had and made a happy marriage with our mom, Dolores, starting with a blind date for the new year, 1959. From nothing, these two created one fabulous-looking family, if I do say so myself, They began very deliberately with Colleen, for whom they had prayed so fervently for so many years. Then came Judy, named in gratitude for the intercession of St. Jude with achieving this growing family. And then there was me. And for some reason, they stopped praying for more children. This family grew up at St. Bartholomew Parish in school. We took $2 bets from the nuns to the Kentucky Derby every year. And once when Dolores couldn't fulfill her playground duty, she sent Hap instead. As I recall, he broke up a fight on the boys' side of the playground by telling the participants that they fought like girls. 
This family alongside our next-door neighbors of 50 years laughed and cried and argued and loved through holidays, vacations, good times and bad, generic beer, CB radios, nicknames. He even nicknamed our suburban the Yellow Looney Bin. And I know one girl who will forever miss hearing herself called Bag Alliance. Our next-door neighbor's last name was Sakelius, which he turned into Sac Alios, which he turned into Bag Alliance. He was a real nicknamer. Once we were grown, Hap really enjoyed his sons-in-law and finally having more male companionship. Some of us were generous in that regard and provided more than one. But he loved nothing and no one like he loved his grandkids. Colleen and Neil started us off with Katie. I can still hear my dad's voice calling out, it's a girl at 4.30 that morning. He nicknamed her Bird and carried her around on his shoulders, singing a painful rendition of Here We Go Loop-de-Loo. He taught her to say, poor Happy, and Albuquerque, and Carlos (laughs) Baerga, and Hap was happy. And speaking of baseball, Judy and Brian gave us Zach, and he somehow came out a whole lot like Hap. He talked incessantly about baseball, statistics, players, scores, reenacted exciting plays in the backyard. We pitched so many balls to that child that we put a lawn chair on the imaginary pitcher's mound. The two of them had more intellectual conversations than the rest of us were equipped to participate in, and Hap was happy. And then Rachel Lemon was born. Our family was shocked and devastated to learn that she was terribly sick, and God took her back a few days later. And all Hap could say was, oh, this part always gets me, because he did. It should have been me. I would have taken her place. And the thing is, he really would have. Now he can see her again, and she can call him happy. So when we most needed to be picked up, Judy and Brian gave us Matthew Lemon. And if Zach had come out thinking like Hap, Matthew certainly came out looking like him. No one who knows Hap can see Matt, his feet, his hands, his chest, his bulldog strength, and not see Hap. Our dad claimed Matthew as his baby and was so pleased with this sweet, smiley child that he always said, I just hope I live long enough to see how that kid turns out. Now you bring the Kleenex, Joyce? <laughs> and Hap was happy. But already he could see and was so proud of how each of those three kids had turned out. They all treat people the way he always did. Which brings me to a story. When I was about 14 or so, our dad had a Winnebago camper, and he loved it. Not unusual. Many people have a Winnebago for summer vacations. Not our dad. He drove his Winnebago to the office every day. <laughs> A friend of our family asked my dad if he could borrow the Winnebago for a day trip. They had company in from out of the country and wanted to visit a water park for the day. I was invited to go along because it was my good friend's family. We had a wonderful day at the water park. Until the ride home, when stopping for gas, my friend's dad plowed into the gas pump, ripping the side panel of the Winnebago. I was distraught. My dad had very few possessions that mattered to him at all. But this weird vehicle was his baby. I was so scared about what his reaction would be. We rode the rest of the way home in total silence. When we arrived, my friend's dad went in first to break the news to Hap. Before I knew it, both came out outside and opened a beer together. Later, alone with my dad, I said, aren't you mad? He answered, listen, I knew something like this would happen. I had a feeling about it this morning, and I know how difficult an adjustment it can be to drive that vehicle. Well, that irritated me, so I looked at him like he was an idiot and said, if you knew it would get damaged, why would you let anyone borrow it? He looked at me like I was the idiot, and he said, because people are more important than things. That was my dad's philosophy in a nutshell. And so with that in mind, we've spent the past 
at this time, two weeks and indeed two years, realizing we have nothing to regret thanks to our dad, who didn't ever wait for the money or the time or the weather to do the important things in life. He made us and himself a great life. He loved our mother. He gave us our faith. He served his country. He traveled the world. He made a hole in one. He prayed at the Vatican. He bowled a 300 game. He golfed St. Andrews in Scotland. He saw his granddaughter graduate from college. So how can we be anything but grateful? I want to applaud our strong, beautiful mother who's literally not left hapside and my big sisters who have taken care of me and each other and their children throughout this challenging time. My husband, Jeff, who's done everything my dad could have wanted him to and more to step in and be the man of the commune. I know my dad didn't worry about me because of you. And Brian, the original, you've always been here in our family since we were the ages that your kids are now. The greatest dad in the world thought you were about the greatest dad in the world. All of you have raised these kids as gifts to the world and made dad so proud of you. They are his legacy. Katie, Zach, and Matt, may you someday know the same joy that you gave this man. He was simply never happier than when he was marveling at you. It would be presumptuous to speak for my dad. Luckily, I'm not above being presumptuous. He would tell you all that he really enjoyed you. Childhood friends, clients, bowlers, Holy Name Society guys, the old office gang, the Florida friends. He'd tell us all, of course, to be happy, to go on vacation and take the dog with you, to drive a trailer up the side of a mountain and take the neighbors with you, to get the electric blue Subaru or the old yellow Porsche two-seater, not the beige Buick. My apologies to all of you beige Buick owners. To take your wife on your business convention trips if you want to, even if no one else does. When you get there, wear shorts to the meetings. Drive a gaggle of Catholic school cheerleaders to Florida in that same famous Winnebago and manage to be passing a church just as Mass is starting. Go ahead and tip the developmentally disabled girl who picks up your tray at Wendy's. It will make her day. Take the country road, as John Denver would say. You can get almost anywhere from Pearl Road or the Parkway, right? Once our dad was driving us home from somewhere in his used Chrysler LeBaron convertible, with the top down, of course, through a really bad neighborhood. We said, Dad, can't we take the highway like normal people? He said, you think these people who live here don't love their kids? He loved veering off the beaten path. He'd tell you to take care of each other, to say your prayers, to remember that God is a baseball fan, so if you want to get to heaven, you better pay homage to the right sport. And today, he wouldn't say goodbye, would he? He never used that word. He'd say, so long, have fun. He approached every new experience with joyful expectation and wonder. If your car broke down or you had to go to the ER or your flight was diverted, he'd say something like, but look at the people you got to meet. I know that's how he'd approach this new experience as well, because as the hymn says from 1 Corinthians, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, no human mind has conceived what God has ready, for those who love him. And then I said, so long, Dad. Have fun. That was long. Oh, that was awesome, though. The priest didn't like that it was long either. He wasn't really amused. It's okay. That's what I said. This is a one-shot deal, man. Right. All right. I make sure that you can reach the Kleenex because oh, this is a little one. fresher you for you. Oh. <laughs> <sighs> Uh, what was it? This it, should have been one we should have done a shot before, Joyce. Yeah, right. So at the beginning of your eulogy, you said something about you can't have one name. 
Right. Right. Uh, nicknames? Yeah. Something. Oh, if, if, if there was one word to describe you since my dad's nickname was Hap. Yeah. It just made me think my, my dad, um, and I, I, this must have been a generational thing. My dad's name is Andrew Michael Fiakovich, but apparently, I don't know what he was named when he was born. It was either Andrew Michael or Michael Andrew. But um, when he got to high school, he had to show his um, birth certificate, and he realized his name was Andrew Michael. So people who knew him prior to high school called him Mickey. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was my husband's dad's nickname and his uncle too, Mickey, Michael, yeah. yeah. But then he insisted on being called Andy or Andrew once he went to high school because that was his name. (laughs) You know, names are crazy. My, My dad ended up being Gerald Harrell. Who does that because it oh. rhymes? So occasionally someone would call him Jerry, but the reason he had to be named Gerald, which was after my grandmother's brother, is because she wanted to name him Calvin after his father, but at the time, the Catholic Church wouldn't baptize a right. child in the name of Calvin. Yeah. Not so a there saint, you right? go. So it ended up Gerald Harrell, and that's why it ended up Hap, because who wants to be a rhyming name? <laughs> my um, my mom's name was changed as well, and her name is Judith Ann, and I'm pretty oh, that's my sh- sister's name. I'm pretty sure it was changed from Sharon. Oh wow! Right, hmm. I'll have to double check with her on that, like what the deal was. Yeah, a lot but that, went on that there. That was a huge, but like it must have been either it was a really strange coincidence, or it was a thing at the time where it's like, yeah, you know, yeah. I changed my mind. <laughs> you know, my husband Jeff is named Michael Jeffrey. Because his dad was Michael. Did you know that? Uh Uh-uh. I mean, that's when it always causes problems. If somebody else makes like an airline reservation for you and you show up there with your correct. Yeah. Um, Not that this matters now, but it was congestive heart failure. It was bothering me and it came to me. Oh, the common thing that your dad had. Yeah, Yeah, that 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 people can recover from. They were going to get under control. So um, my eulogy has a a bit different tone, but... um, (laughs) Hi, I'm Joyce. I'm Andy's oldest child and only daughter. Thank you for coming out today to pay your respects to my father. And his death, the first thing that is almost always mentioned is the only thing he never spoke about, his service in Vietnam. My dad was a combat war veteran, the only son in a family with six sons to fight. He did. Wow. Yeah. They were all enlisted for a period of 18 months. That would oh. never happen today, but no. there was an article that like everybody in the family has a copy of. There was an 18-month period where all six of my grandma's sons were enlisted. <sighs> my dad was the only one to, to actually um, see battle. Um, he didn't sign up for, the, for war. He was drafted. The Marines couldn't have asked for a more qualified person to handle the unthinkable duties he took on. Mm-hmm. My dad grew up with four older brothers and two younger ones. From the stories I've heard, there was as much rough housing as there was partying. In ways only Fiakovich's can understand, they had each other's backs every day of their lives in one way or another. And what's odd, and I digress a little, is as I read this at my dad's funeral, mm-hmm. and obviously I had written this, my dad grew up with four older brothers and two younger ones, and I was like, I have two younger brothers. Like oh, That's something we have in common. Yeah, there's a little light bulb. There's a little light bulb. Just before James and I got married in the spring of 2013, we both received promotions at our former jobs, which took us both on the road in different directions. James spent a lot of time driving to Milwaukee while I was getting to know Columbus. We decided to listen to and share an audible account so that we could talk about books together. American Sniper by Chris Kyle was the first book we listened to. 
And the reason being, it was like the um, typical, like, what movie do you want to go see? Mm-hmm. And we couldn't, we couldn't agree on anything, but, um, well, I eventually war books, but mm-hmm. I, American Sniper was brand new. And I'm like, oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, current events, too. Yeah, and that's the only reason that I was interested. It was like, it's current. So American Sniper by Chris Kyle was the first book we listened to. It's a long and interesting book that made my drive more tolerable. Sometime after the halfway point, Chris told a story about a young Marine that died in his arms. I unexpectedly found myself sobbing uncontrollably on that Mm -hmm. long stretch of I-71 where you feel like you're in the same place for about an hour. I mean, I was a mess. And that was completely unexpected. Like, Mm -hmm. it just came out of nowhere. I wanted to know and learn more about war and the Marines and Vietnam. So we read books like Matterhorn and With the Old Breed. And then I found The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. And there was no doubt I was reading about my dad. I started to better understand what he might have gone through and how he was he has never stopped carrying his comrades and his experiences from the Vietnam War. He valued people over everything, although he never made that statement out loud because he never really talked about how he felt. It's very clear, especially now that he's gone. He described people by his interactions with them, never by where they lived or what they did for a living. My dad was never impressed with material things. He didn't care. Just when you thought you'd finally got him that gift that he'd cherish, that golf club he wouldn't throw, or the car he wouldn't toss coffee all over, he'd prove you wrong. He had a car that we called the Coffee Mobile because it looked like cow print on the inside. I don't, he must, I don't know what happened. We called it the Coffee Mobile. He didn't care about your title, your house, your education, or the money you made. If you joined his softball team or bowled with him once a week, then you may have earned his respect. Unique is the adjective that best describes my dad. He put his own twist on everything, maybe even common sense. (laughs) I was an only child until I was almost seven years old, at which time my life got bombarded with brothers. I have that in common with my dad. Oh, maybe I did realize that before Mm -hmm. I wrote that other line. Although he had three older brothers, we both have two younger ones. You know, I probably wasn't thinking clearly at that time, so that Mm -hmm. memory is now straight in my mind. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine life without my brothers, and I can't imagine what it feels like to say goodbye to them. My heart breaks for my Uncle Frank and my Uncle John, who Mm -hmm. are the two remaining of the six boys. My dad wasn't the easiest person to deal with. It was hard being his daughter. He let me learn my lessons in life on my own. At times I wondered if he even worried about me. He'd ultimately give me a somewhat annoyed look that said he knew I'd be okay. It was almost as if he was telling me that I didn't need him, but Mm -hmm. I couldn't have become who I am without him. I never quite knew how to tell him this because I, too, Mm -hmm. became skilled in the art of crossing my arms and not saying a thing. I've been told more than once that I am like his mom, my grandma Nellie, and I think he loved her just just as much as it frustrated him that even makes sense. Mm-hmm. My dad loved sports and was quite the athlete, even though he didn't always act sportsmanlike. <laughs> he was ridiculously competitive. He definitely passed these traits on to me. I think impressing my dad was more important to me than winning softball games or gold medals. He always supported me in any sport I played. Figure skating and softball were the two I stuck with. I have memories of my dad at the boards of the skating rink. Most time he'd come about two, 20 minutes early to watch me practice. One day after a lot of falls, my legs were practically soaked from hitting the ice so much. My dad said, were you skating or swimming? 
<laughs> on the softball field, we were a force to be feared. He coached my teams for several years. He and I would fight so much. I played shortstop, and he would tell me where and how to stand. Much like him, I didn't like being told what to do, so I'd cross my arms and ignore him. I was good, though, really good. So good that I went from angrily throwing my glove on the bench to angrily throwing my glove at him when we came off the field. (laughs) His proudest moment was when I threw a ball to first from short so hard I left stitch marks in the girl's head. Ooh. (laughs) Oh, if he were still alive, he'd tell you that story. It was one time. I skated for almost 30 years because I loved it so much. My parents came to every show, every competition, that, and every competition that they could make it to. In 2018, I was invited to play softball on an adult co-ed team in Strongsville, and that led to the creation of softball and bowling teams for Modern Yoga, the studio that James and I own. Not only did my parents come to watch me play, it became just like the old days for him. While I was having fun and trying to find my groove after a 20-year hiatus, he was quick to tell me exactly what I was doing wrong. (laughs) I got sick during one game. I had watched my niece the day before because she had stayed home sick. I played so bad that day. It was awful. (laughs) And no matter how hard I tried, I just couldn't get it together. On the way out to play third base in the fifth inning, I threw up. I literally walked out of bounds or out past mm-hmm. the foul line and threw up. It was so embarrassing. Mm. I obviously left the field, grabbed my stuff, and headed toward the parking lot. My parents walked out with me, and my dad was telling me <laughs> I need to keep my eyes down until the ball goes into my glove and that I was dropping my elbow when I swung the bat. I was like, Dad, I, I threw up. Can I get a break? <laughs> Last summer, I posted a, a post-game text from my mom telling me what my dad thought of how I played. She, I, we were, we went out for drinks after, and I literally got a text from my mom going, <laughs> "You Coaching. hit, you hit okay today." I'm like, "Great." There's no doubt I'm still playing softball because of my father. There's no doubt I still wanted to impress him, even at 47 years old. And there is no doubt that the main team for Modern Yoga has become a group of really close friends, mm-hmm. friends who have had my back dealing with this loss because of my father. I get it, Dad. (laughs) During quarantine, our team had virtual happy hours on Friday nights this spring since we weren't playing. This is obviously last summer of 2020. My parents thought this was really funny. (laughs) One time when I FaceTimed my parents in quarantine, my dad told me that they were bored. So they had a few drinks, and then they had sex. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Yep. My 76-year-old dad said that to me at the start of the pandemic. I was like, oh, my God, Dad, okay, I have enough information. I don't need to know anything else. (laughs) And that's when he said, the magic wand still works. (laughs) That is fantastic. And I know you can't see this on the podcast, but my dad was like laying on the couch like this. Oh, (laughs) my gosh. And he didn't really talk like that. It was more to make me uncomfortable than anything else. That's fantastic. Every Sunday I will hear him announce... Judy kickoff at the beginning of a Browns game, and I will think about the time he was my plus one at an event at the Browns training facility, and he stuffed desserts in his pockets <laughs> because he wanted to share them with my mom. I will always check, check napkins for teeth because my dad had a, like a little partial, partial, and he, I think, had to have it replaced a couple of times because he would take it out and put it in a napkin, and sometimes they would clear, clear the, table. the table. Yeah. Um, 
and I will always value people, time, and experience over anything. He will live on in my competitive nature, immature temper, and lack of patience. As my dad... This must be a type. My hope for my mom, Doug and Brian, is that we can all put down some of the things that we carried for our dad. And I hope that my dad finally can put down everything that he carried. Wow, that was great. I laughed, I cried, and I and I learned more about your dad and your family. I was fortunate to meet him a number of times. Um, when the studio was really new, they came in here a time or two. When you weren't here, they had been to breakfast or to yeah. a doctor somewhere nearby. And then, of course, the, the season that we bowled. Yeah. And he and your mom bowled together, too. But it's nice to hear these other funny stories and to know that the magic wand still worked, frankly. <laughs> Pretty right up near to the end. Yeah, that's great. I'm really happy for that. For them. <laughs> I asked my mom prior to delivering this eulogy if it was okay. And she was like, I mean, <laughs> and the whole funeral home laughed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody there yeah. laughed. And, but that was kind of how my dad was. He was, it was, <laughs> he was uncomfortably unusual with his humor sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, at least you know there there were those moments that that yeah. are making me smile right yeah. now. So, so not that we'll never talk about this stuff again, but again, this was our introduction and our story to um, how we how we connect yoga and grief, and really how both of it is in our lives and how it mm-hmm. intertwines. And we do have some guests coming up that have their own stories, and we look forward to talking with them. And I hope that you guys um, stay tuned or tune back in. And what what was it that you that you always say? I want to say like and follow, oh, but it's rate, review, and subscribe. Any interaction that you give us on the podcast, wherever you listen, helps us out so much. And if you've made it this far in this podcast, our podcast is doing pretty well, especially for new podcasts. So please keep supporting us. We really appreciate it. We do. And let us know what you'd like to talk about. Yeah. And if you'd like to be on the podcast, just reach out. Thanks again. Bye. Bye.